Now we're right in the top of the windmill yeah. and we can feel it actually shaking. It's amazing. It's all dithering and jittering. And there's a massive wheel. I'm stood right underneath it. And it was built in 1780. And then there's a load of cogs going underneath. Which is going like bilio. And the whole thing's shaking. It's Settle down on the Wiggly sofa for your weekly escape to life in rural Herefordshire. I'm Ricky from Wiggly Wigglers and I work in the packing shed, hopefully getting your parcels to you in one piece. Join us every Monday as we cover the environment, farming, biodiversity and the things we can do to make a difference. Your co-hosts today are Heather and Richard. I'm Heather and I'm sitting on the sofa at Lower Blakemere and I'm joined by my co-host <laughs> Richard. And Farmer Phil's here too. Hi. Uh, now just a quick ask of you. Yeah. What did you think of last week's interview where we turned the table on the journalist? Brilliant. I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot from it too. But it, it was good. Particularly when Abigail the cow came and uh, investigated him a little closer than he felt comfortable <laughs> with. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? He was a good sport, wasn't he? Yeah. He took it on a chin. It's good to get a voice for farmers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, this week we've got Monty and his worm cast as usual. Phil comes in to talk about cattle. Well, that's unusual, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> good Lord, what a scoop. Can't do that. And he's going to tell us if he's got his single farm payment again. <laughs> <laughs> the world's most boring Don't podcast. We, we know the answer to that. <laughs> oh, we'll guess, will we? <laughs> what happens when he gets it? That's what I want to know. He's going to treat us all to a steak lunch. Excellent. Team Wiggly have been off to Holland and find out how our worms are bred. And we've got Plants of the Week with Alison talking about marjoram, pre-recorded on a bitter cold day. Yeah. So now we're in the middle of spring, we're just going back a bit. Right. We've got a bit of feedback, and so off with the show. Well, the first thing is, I need to know, Rich, yeah. whose tablecloth you butchered to make that shirt. <laughs> it's a bit hard, it's nice. It is, it is. I thought it's quite a nice shirt. There's a story behind this shirt, you know. I've Good had this Lord, shirt many, isn't it? Many years. <laughs> do I want to know this? Yeah, you, you probably do, I reckon. I this mean, is, your um, past is a bit shady at best. <laughs> No, this is probably one of my, the least shady episodes in my life. <laughs> I was wearing this shirt several years ago. We went to fishing for bluefin tuna off the west coast of Ireland. Uh, a mate of mine went for three days, right? Not really sure whether we'd get one or anything. Bit of a boyhood dream, really, to catch a giant bluefin tuna. They've been turning up there in recent years, feeding on a species called sari pike. Very small little little fish, but lots of them because they don't have a commercial market. So anyway, we, we, off we went. And uh, the most amazing thing was, first day, didn't see a single tuna, nothing at all. Sea was barren, massive great ground swell, felt as sick as a dog. <laughs> that was nothing to do with the night before, was it? Nothing to do with the night before. Well, no, I haven't said that. <laughs> I might have something to do with the night before. Anyway, the next day we went out and the skipper heard that there were some bluefin showing further up the coast. So he said, right, what we'll do, lads, is we'll steam up the coast and try and find one. So as we were going up the coast, a couple of hours' time, we saw these huge kind of silhouettes, these sort of amazing things leaping out of the water in the distance. And it was like sailing into Jurassic Park. We sailed up the coast and there were these huge bluefin tuna jumping out of the water, chasing their fodder fish. And all these fish between sort of four and six hundred pounds, a bit like your cows. They had the surface <laughs> area of one of your cows, right? Incredible, incredible stuff. But the funny thing was that day we had a couple of scientists with us from Monterey who had come over specifically to tag bluefin tuna. 
We'd also had this freelance photographer that wanted to come to get some good photographs for a story. And the BBC came out with us the next day to film us catching one of these bluefins. So we spent the whole day trolling through these bluefins. They didn't want to know at all. Anyway, the sun was setting and I'd pretty much given up hope and I sat there and my mate was in the cabin just right into the skipper. And all of a sudden I saw this huge swirl behind one of the lures, which were like trolling plastic squid. Huge swirl and all of a sudden, bang, and the reel squealed and this fish took and zooming off and I screamed to the skipper, I said, fish on! And they came running out, right, they came running out. And this other guy, one of the scientists, grabbed the other rod to wind in the lures really quickly. Winding, 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 and it bang, off it went from the outriggers. Two fish on with a double header, right? I'm there, Rich. Absolutely, yeah, amazing stuff, incredible stuff. After about two and a half hours of serious battle with these things, because they are massive and they really do fight hard, we landed them both. The skipper had a ramp specially made on the back of his boat, and we were able to put a gaff, slip a gaff in under the chin, pull them up the ramp, and these guys from Monterey had these satellite tags about three grand's worth each tag, right? And they tagged these tuna and we put them back. Now, on the open market, those tuna were worth about 12,000 quid apiece and we put them back because bluefins are an endangered species, you know. I mean, obviously, if I slagged off the Japanese for wiping out our seas for eating too much sushi from an unsustainable source, then, you know, it would be pretty grim of me to... I mean, I could be driving around in a, a freelander now. <laughs> I can <laughs> tell how much but, you hurt you, but, you know... Six months later, I got the print-offs from the scientists. I asked them to send me the print-offs. What had happened is they'd swum around. They'd gone down the south coast of England, spent a bit of time there, and they'd swum, swum across into the mid-Atlantic ridge, and then they'd separated. So even though they were caught together, they were peas in a pod, the same colour size, same age group. They'd split up. The one tag had popped off just outside the Bay of Biscay, and the other one had popped off just outside the Gulf of Mexico. And the reason they think that is is because there are two breeding populations of bluefin tunas that spawn in those two places. Isn't that incredible? But those satellite tags will be able to record lots and lots of different water parameters, including the time they'd spent in certain areas. That's a Richard gem. But what about the poor old tablecloth? <laughs> so yeah, this, well, so this tablecloth yeah. has been covered in all sorts of fish slime. <laughs> it's nice of you to work to work. Yeah, no, cheers. You like this shirt, don't you? It's very nice. Mm. This is a sort of pink and blue check. Hot chino. Sort of furry. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. No worries. Over to Phil. Phil, there's been a change in the cattle movement restrictions, I think. Yep, very briefly. you're dying to tell us about. (laughs) (laughs) The the government have put in place this week, or last week, I should say, the pre-movement testing rules for TB, for tuberculosis, and this means that any animal that is over 15 months old that hasn't been tested for TB within the previous two months has to be before you can move it from one farm to another. Good or bad? On the whole, good, but I do still believe that it has to go with measures to control TB in the badger population as well, that controlling it in the cattle is fine and essential, but we've got to address the problem of TB in the badgers. And interestingly, I also saw last week a piece of work that the University of Warwick have done. They've developed a test where they can test the soil around a badger set and identify which sets are endemic with TB. So that rather than the prospect of slaughtering badgers indiscriminately, we could potentially target a certain set. And that makes a great deal of sense to me because it means we're not slaughtering healthy badgers, which I don't want to do. But we are addressing the TB issue in badgers, which until we do, we will not cure it in cattle. Farmers are getting terrible press at the moment because everywhere it says farmers want to annihilate, slaughter, kill, wipe out badgers. What's your response to that? 
I think that on the whole, farmers are not thinking that at all. Some of it is that that's an easy headline to write as misunderstanding. Farmers are bad at PR with the press and the press don't fully understand. I think that the majority of farmers want to get rid of TB in badgers and cattle and it means culling badgers with TB and if we can find a way of targeting those and leave the healthy ones then that's the optimum for me. What's your response to a wildlife lover who will say you can't possibly cull badgers, badgers caught TB off the cattle and their innocent wildlife? That is entirely true as far as we know the badgers did get TB from the cattle but Whatever the history is, the fact of the matter is that the badgers now have TB. The TB will kill the badger that is infected with it. So that, you know, the net result is the same. It's better for the badgers to get rid of TB in the badgers. And the only way of doing it is to take out those badgers that are infected. It will lead to healthy badger population and healthy cattle population. You going to let me get away with that, Rich? Yeah, yeah, seems like a fairly sensible sort of... As much as I hate to say it. (laughs) Well, let's hope the test is accurate because it's only at the development stage at the moment. But if it works, I think that's the way forward because vaccines take a long time to develop and are difficult to administer. And I personally don't like wholesale culling, which is the option put forward at the moment. But I personally don't think it'll ever be agreed. And you've got a letter in from who? Yeah, very briefly, the Williams family from, and you'll have to excuse the pronunciation, the Lane Farm Bronith Carmarthen in South West Wales, have sent me a magazine from the University of California, which very briefly, the article they picked out for me to read, is about greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. A bit jargonish, I know, but the important one is carbon dioxide. And any way that we can tie up carbon, so plants growing tie up carbon, they absorb carbon dioxide, is good. And the article is basically saying that minimum tillage rather than intensive tractor work in the fields helps tie up carbon. And so from my point of view, adapting the Californian system, mixed rotation, plenty of plant matter going back into the soil and being retained in the soil helps. Um, And so, yes, we do practice a certain amount of minimum tillage ourselves. The only downside of this argument was that the farmer that they profile is relying on GM crops to go with his minimum tillage so that he can use more herbicides because of the minimum tillage so that there is that American slant on it and that might not be acceptable in this country. Personally, I'm not very keen on GM crops because the customer doesn't want them. But it was very interesting and thank you very much indeed, Lisa Williams, for sending it in and I shall give it to Richard to read. Yeah, that'll be good. I feel GM is a bit of a big subject that we can definitely... Definitely, lots of pros and cons there. Definitely lots of pros and cons. But I'm interested, Phil. One thing I wanted to ask you when you said that, minimum tillage is one thing. How do you define no tillage? That's a very good question because no tillage, in my mind, means no crop. If you look at intensive vegetable production, that's what I would describe as maximum tillage. So you're sifting the soil to quite a deep depth. There's a lot of cultivation going on, a lot of fuel being used per acre. From there, you go right to the other end by using a thing that we call a direct drill, which just slots the seed into the remnants of the previous crop, and that's it. We practice something in between the two. We mostly plough, but not all. And the reason we do that is that the ploughing effect reduces the weed burden and reduces the weed killers we have to use. 
as you go to less tillage, you have more problems with weeds and volunteers, and how you balance that is tricky. Yeah. But this is another piece of information to fit into the jigsaw, if you like. Right. And just in case the listener thinks that I've got some uh, nasal problem, any issues during that interview were from my colleague Toast. This is a contribution is... <laughs> from an animal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, who's snoring uh, yeah. in the corner and having a little dream. Little doggy dreams. <laughs> Alison and I are in the Wiggly kitchen, so any creaking is my table, my kitchen table, my old pine, lovely kitchen table, which was a wedding present from Adrian and Valley. So thank you very much. Mind you, it was 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, heck. Wow, it's done well. Hmm. Anyway, we're sat here, and in the middle of us, we've got the audio recording device. Hello, audio recording device. That's quite cute. Yeah. (laughs) And we've also got this gorgeous herb, wild marjoram. Bit of a sniff about it. Yeah, there isn't much at the moment. That's just because it's too cold. Probably too cold. Yeah. But I know in the summer there's a gorgeous smell. Um, And so instead of being the cultivated marjoram, this one's... The wild marjoram, Oregano vulgari. Where do you find it then, Al? Um, well, you can find it um, in the wild. It grows oh, yeah, you can smell it now. In the wild. Yep. Yeah, it comes out a bit. Um, it's found mainly on chalk and limestone. It prefers neutral soil, really. And it has nice bright pink flowers on, July to September. And often I put it on my pizzas. Yeah, you can put it on your pizzas or you can put it, chop it up and put it in your spaghetti bolognese. Or in fact, in the Food for Free book by Richard Baby. Oh, I, I love that, look at that It's great. He's got a recipe for herb scones. Yeah, and you just chop that up, put a bit of that in, a teaspoonful for a recipe. Plain scone with herbs and then a bit of butter, is it? Yeah, that's it. And he serves it with roast meat and vegetables. Sounds Mm, delicious. Yes. And wild marjoram, how how does it differ from the cultivated type that most people have got in their herb garden? Well, it's not quite as strong-scented, obviously, and... You have to uh, trim the flowers off if you want to use it for cooking, because otherwise it goes very bitter. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, so before just it, the leaves. Yeah, yeah. The leaves are beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. Little tiny quite leaves. reddish colour. Yeah, a little tiny yeah. bit of lilac colour in them, but they're really nice. Does it spread like conventional marjoram uh, does? It will spread quite a lot. Yeah, you can control it in a herb pot or in a window box, that sort of thing. It'd be ideal, wouldn't it? It's yeah. And butterflies, I think, love it. Yeah, butterflies love that. It's a real nectar source as well, but for bees in particular, excellent for that. And when would I plant it? Spring onwards, really. Uh, It might be a bit frost sensitive. And how have you cultivated it? Um, It's all grown from seed, uh, like the other plants. It's grown in that pot from tiny mini plug that we put in the pot, and then it, it bushes out. So from one little plug in that pot... That's how it spread in sort of last summer that would be potted up. Really? Mm. Just so the listener knows that from one little tiny plug, so a plug that would have been about two centimetres wide, now we've got this gorgeous bushy plant that's about six inches wide. There you go. See, I go from (laughs) centimetres to inches at the drop of a hat. So it's about (laughs) ten centimetres wide. It looks absolutely, completely healthy and bursting with life, doesn't it? Yeah. And yet, you know, to be honest, it's been outside here all winter. It has, and it's still thriving. But in the spring, it'll pick up and new growth will come. 
And what's it planted in? It's planted in peat-free compost. Oh, peat-free! Yeah, yeah peat-free, they all are, yes, with added fertiliser. And so is that a queer base or...? Yeah, it's queer base. That's great, yeah. isn't it? God, yeah, look at the roots on that, that's really done well, actually. Is that pop binder? No, that's not pop binder at all, that's, that's a lovely, spot isn't it? on, that one. Spot on, <laughs> well yeah. done, girl. It's a corker. <laughs> a corker. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to have to cut this short because now... The time is four minutes past five and Alison is a fantastic timekeeper. Yeah, I wonder what the overtime rate is. <laughs> <laughs> For a chat on a podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> this is a purely non-profit making activity, I can assure you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I better go back to racing. You have. Thanks, Al. Bye. You've been on a little mission, haven't you? You've just come back from four days in where? Four days? In Almkirk in mm. Holland, followed by Amsterdam. And we're joined by three of my favourite chicks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Richie. Rachel, Sandra and Jodie. Hello. Just a minute, oh, yeah. so now you've got four of your favourite chicks. There's three of my favourite <laughs> chicks. And me. No. <laughs> no, you're not supposed to prompt me. Uh, you're the mother hen. <laughs> yeah, you're the mother hen. <laughs> So anyway, back to uh, back to back to where we where we started from. So uh, why did you go over to Holland, Jode? We went over to see our supplier, Biodone, who supplies us with all our worms and our mealworms, yeah. and to see how it all works. So people think it's strange, don't they? Because but they think, why do wigglies get their worms from Holland? Why do wigglies get their worms from Holland? Well, when we started, we bred all our own worms. Every single one of them. And that resulted in one massive pile of manure. Right. And several of us sat on top of it. Do you remember those days, girlies? Yes, I do. We used to have to sort through the worms. We used to have to separate the worms using light. And we used to have to make sure that we fed the worms. And make sure that the worms are all coming to the surface. And then something would go wrong. And then customers, darn them, would want the worms. Yeah. So then we had to pick them and it was cold and it was hot, wasn't it? And you had a job to find them. And yeah. yeah. So, Nightmare. we decided that there was lots of worm breeders in the UK. Maybe we could buy some of them. Yeah. But as time went on, what do you think of them, girls? <laughs> they run out of worms, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People don't understand that, do they? No. If they order their worms, they don't quite understand why they're not going to turn up on the day that you've yeah. told them that they are going to turn up on. That's right. And they... They also give you all their worms and don't keep enough back to make the babies to produce the next lot. Right. And so eventually they go dry and then that was right. that. So There's been so lots of um, what I would call scams <coughs> in the yeah. UK and the US and in fact I think the Dutch worm industry where a person comes up with the idea of supplying worms say per metre. The farmer buys the worms per metre and then sells them back but there's no end market. That market just goes to another farmer to buy back so I think they did it with rabbits I think they did it with ostriches and worms was brilliant because of course you never really knew how many you got so it's a kind of disastrous industry but obviously the Dutch have got sus now so these guys that produce the worms for wigglers now are reliable which in many respects is the most important thing so you went over there when you went over on a Thursday night and uh, what was the first thing you did when you landed? Have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rach took charge. Did you, Rach? Yeah, yeah Rach. Yeah, they're a little bit unorganised, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we hired a car and we drove down to where the hotel was booked by Biodome. And the guy's name is Boss. 
stop there the night and then next morning we went to buy a dome to meet up with boss and he showed us around his worm farm right jean tell me a bit about your worm production we have now a production from five million baby worms in one week yeah and uh, we uh, can breed all the worms uh, in this in this uh, building right this uh, we're bringing to uh, 30 uh, worm breeders yeah a part of the worms and she breed them up for us okay we give them the, the soil and the food yeah and uh, we uh, have agreement with that with the breeders that we uh, buy all that worms back and then we send them to your company and what do the farmers think of this? Is that successful for them? Yes, they are uh, very uh, happy about that. And she now she uh, know, uh, she have uh, uh, she wants sure that she can uh, sell the worms uh, and uh, before she breeding and sometimes she coming with the with the worms and, the, and not in the right time. Right. She coming in the September with a lot of worms and then sometimes nobody need the worms and then she staying there. Three, three uh, uh, kind of worms, yep. uh, sort of worms, yes. Okay, so they, these are perfect for wiggly wigglers. Yes, that's this the, this what we, we need. The reason is that we have the the coming so it's in the nature natural. The, the no, normal, yeah. Na- so normal they're way. naturally good at composting. Yes, yes, yes. So we're in a room with uh, hundreds of white stacking bins. Roughly, how many worms have you got in this area? Jean? This area, a lot of. <laughs> yeah, a lot of. Worms. Some some uh, some uh, boxes are ten thousand five hundred one box. So and uh, is they, uh, I think, uh, twenty five euro pellets with forty boxes. Right. And then <laughs> it's millions, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's millions. Yeah. Okay, can we go and have a look at the baby worms? Yes. Okay. Sprinkling uh, now in this room a lot of water. He has 20 d- 22 degrees Celsius. Right. So for the for come on the the, the 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 young the eggs we set in young in the new eggs in this uh, this room uh, Friday. Right. And uh, uh, it is now uh, now is Saturday and tomorrow she's sprinkling a lot of water in this. Yeah. That is uh, you get steam. Yeah. And then uh, the 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 eggs stimulate the eggs on to. Uh, come in hatch out yes so the the eggs like to hatch out when it's warm and wet warm and wet yes and uh, we do uh, we, we first we do water in uh, in the boxes by the ground okay so first you mix the water with the soil yes right in the eggs and how many eggs are in each box uh, we try to do 5,000 in one uh, one box. Did you count them all yourself, John? Yes, we uh, <laughs> no, no, not all, the, <laughs> not all of them, but uh, we uh, we we uh, we uh, a little bit. We uh, uh, one liter. Yeah. We tell one liter uh, how many eggs in one liter, okay. and then we set 250 li- uh, eggs in one liter, and then we uh, make the uh, sum that we. Yeah. So we yeah. watched you yesterday put these boxes together I think yeah and so now it's Saturday when will the eggs hatch out when, when she coming out yeah yes uh, after two un, uh, one and a half week okay ten days ten days ten days she coming out and then she uh, we give them no food only no food. only only ground no food and it's only for for uh, that she must all the eggs must coming out and then we give them food so once if they're all hatched and they're little white worms yeah, yeah, but, but uh, if if we do that not, 
then you have a very difficult sizes if you feed them directly right. oh, this I is see. Most, it, first all the worms are uh, out of the eggs yep. and then we go we give them a little bit wet ground on the top a little bit of fresh ground yeah fresh wet wet fresh red ground. clay yeah okay and red gra- clay soil yes and the the the, the worms uh, coming on the, the little worms coming on the top yeah and she eating a little bit and then after one week uh, we give them uh, baby food baby food and that Aww. is <laughs> <laughs> and was that the um, we saw you fermenting? Yes, that um, is the, that is what we make with the b- bacterial bacteria. Yeah. So like we make the effective microorganisms to spray on the garden and to make bokashi out of. You use bacteria with molasses yes. to feed baby worms. Yes. And yes. is there a bit of skepticism about that? Do people believe that that's a good thing? No, uh, no uh, a lot of people d- don't believe it, and. Uh, Oh, look, it's his phone. We always get that on a weekly podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just interrupt John to talk to Boss, because Boss, of course, we found out, is actually the president of Holland. (laughs) The president of the worms, or or what what do you mean? (laughs) Yeah, well, we found out that when we come to Holland, that we found all these posters with Vote Boss de Pooter on them. So, Boss, what's that all about? Uh, that means the, the the people here in the Netherlands can give a vote yep. for a guy to to uh, give a vote for the government. Yeah, and a lot of people here in my surrounding give a vote to me. Ooh, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> wow! But we, but we did go up the road and see that some people actually crossed your face out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not so popular with them. By some people, I'm not so popular, but by the most, I'm popular. And what's your role in Biodome, boss? Yeah. Now, I organize all the export and contacts with the, with the customers. Uh, we're selling a lot of worms to uh, America yeah. for fishing and also worms to England, mostly for the can of worms and the mixed worms. Yeah. And you are a good customers of us, uh, Wiggly Wigglers. <laughs> we are very, uh, appreciate very, it's very that we can do, do business since uh, several years with your com- company. Fantastic. Thank you, boss. Only, the only problem is a little bit the prices. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cross that out. <laughs> Fantastic. So they've got, I mean, obviously they've got a massive operation, haven't they? What was the thing that struck you, Sam, about the, the operation? But the first thing that was the most shocking was the smell. Right. There was this sort of, it was a fermented <laughs> smell. Really? Mm, appley. Really? Thought, worms, you're not expecting an appley sort of smell no, when you walk right, through no. the door. Because no. our worms, when we've got lots and lots of worms, you walk into our cooler and it's well, not the pleasantest of smells, is it? No, that's right. Um, and we later found out that's because of the food they're using to feed the worms up. Right. They use a fermenting process similar to REMs yeah. to uh, build up the worm's immune system. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's amazing. All completely natural, but mm. they ferment it in exactly the same way as you fermented your EMs, wasn't it, Joe? Oh, yeah, in that um, yogurt maker. Yeah. And when we went in there, like Sam said, you could smell that smell. And he showed us this vat next to where they're putting it in with the baby worms. And it looked exactly the same as what it did in the yoghurt maker that I made it in. Yeah. With like white sort of scum on the top. Right. And exactly the same smell. And we, really? we were quite yeah. shocked because we didn't know they were using this in no. the worms. To, no, that's right. And really pleased that they were as well at the same yeah. time. 
John is the expert in the worm farm department and John said that lots of times when he tells the growers, so they grow them on at different places, that he's using microorganisms, they're like, oh, you know, you don't need all that, it's a bit mumbo-jumbo, but actually he's confident that it makes the resilience of the worms better and also it means that the bedding lasts longer and is more nutritious. So it's all tied in. Yeah, Yeah. isn't that incredible? Didn't they have an amazing way of sorting the worms from the material when they harvest them? Yeah, they'd had a machine developed for them. Well, it was a huge machine. It went up a conveyor belt, which sorted the um, worms from a lot of the compost and bedding. And then they went along this extra bit. And it was a circular cylinder thing that spun round and round with holes in it like a sieve. Yeah. and the very fine bedding dropped through there and it just separated out the worms from the chunky bits that were left and spat them out at the end yeah. in different directions so it was done <laughs> on the weight at the end it's amazing so fully automated then to all automated so I, had, I had visions of little dutch umpalumpas the machine was charlie in the chocolate factory but the humans weren't <laughs> So you say, so you say. Yeah, fantastic. We asked him if it damaged the worms because it really looked like, you know, really spinning out of control. But he said, no, it bruised like (laughs) a bit. (laughs) It's like going on a fairground ride, isn't it? And no, he said it was fine. Wow. From Worms to Monty's Wormcast. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty, a weekly fact on worms. Mealworms aren't earthworms at all. When they have pupated, they become beetles. The adult beetles have wings but rarely fly. Thank you, Monty. Next week, we've got local wildlife expert Neville Hart coming on the show and you'll find out why our own Ricardo doesn't necessarily agree with him. So, speak to you next week. Bye. So, Rich, I bet you often go Dutch, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've, met, you've already said that once today. I, yeah, no, that's not because that just, was pre-recorded. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I see, I see, I see. So, hang on, so, hang on, uh, for <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> I could have just left that in there anyway, because it doesn't matter whether it's pre-recorded or not, because it's part of, part of banter, isn't it? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't necessarily have to correct. This is the end. This is how it happens. Yeah. 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 Right. Michael. Okay. <laughs>